Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, tonight, V Radio is proud to once again have Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows of the Venus Project in a post-world tour interview. Um, we're going to talk about some of the highlights of their world tour and basically pretty much anything that Jacques and Roxanne want to talk about afterwards. Um, I first of all want to take a moment to thank everyone who helped donate to V Radio. Uh, you guys are basically the reason I can continue to do this. I really appreciate it. And um, everybody who donated, you know, they're immensely appreciated. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the projects that I have coming up. Uh, the Awakening uh, comic book, basically a comic book adaption of Doug Millett's Awakening, is currently in production, as in we're producing it. Um, and I also got permission recently to do a comic book adaption of Capitalism and Other Kids Stuff, uh, the film by Patty Jo Shannon from the World Socialist Movement. So you guys will be able to check that out soon. Um, that mean, mind you, that's a while from now because we still have to finish the Awakening comic. Um, just one of many projects, actually, I kind of have in the fire for the Venus Project now. So <clears throat> be uh, basically on the lookout for those. We'll probably have them in the print-on-demand format. And I uh, want to thank everybody once again for supporting V-Radio. Please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org, like v-radio.org. Um, spread the show around. You know, uh, link it on your Facebooks. Link it on your Twitters. Uh, basically, it's, the major motivation that I have beyond all of this is the fact that I do have a strong listener base. And honestly, this is kind of my biggest contribution to the world at this point. So thank you all once again for supporting V-Radio and for spreading the word. That being said... Hello, Jock and Roxanne. It's great to have you back. Hi, Neil. Hi, Neil. Great to be here. Excellent. Well, um, I, uh, as I'd asked you before the show, Roxanne, just to you know take a moment to maybe uh, pick some highlights from the world tour. Um, so go ahead and uh, you know, let's just basically go over the, the as as they come to mind. You know, bring them up for the listeners. Tell us what we ex- what you experienced while you were on the tour. Well, the whole thing was really fantastic, mostly to see how interested so many of the Zygite movement members were and how much they worked towards this. And it wasn't only Zygite members that we had helped put on certain lectures, but other people as well. But um, it's just amazing how hard they worked and how enthusiastic they were and how interested they were in learning more about this direction from us. That was our main interest really weren't that interested in sightseeing or doing other things, but mainly spending time with the members and filling them in with any questions they might have and just more information about this direction. Mm-hmm. And I think with that in mind, it went pretty well. Excellent. Yeah, really, there was a lot of the stops. I mean, I really wish I could have been there with you guys um, to see some of the things that you did and talk to some of the people that you did. I mean, I imagine for Jock, now that, you know, you've been working on this direction all this time, um, it must be pretty, you know, uh, I guess the word would be invigorating to finally see, you know, your work being discussed by people all over the world. Um, We were pleasantly surprised because I would say the meetings all over the world were about 95 effective. Everybody seemed to learn a great deal and everybody seemed to be motivated. Uh, All the young people all over the world seemed to be very involved in the possibility of a resource-based economy. And the audience really 
really enjoyed it. They were really involved and always asked questions. Mm-hmm. And we never had enough, although we spent an hour with questions and answers most of the time, we, we never had enough time to, to get to everybody's questions. Well, um, I guess now, uh, I mean, they say, is, uh, what would you say was the, the one, you know, like the questions that stick out in your head? Any that like you maybe had not heard before on previous radio shows? Any good questions perhaps that might have stumped you, Jacques? I know you're always looking for unique questions or questions you haven't answered. Can you think of any highlights from different lectures that you've given in regards to questions you'd like to share with the audience? Well, the only thing I can say is many of the Zeitgeist people projected their own values into the system rather than inquiring to exactly how the Venus Project operates. As long as you've got people going off in many different directions, you're not dealing with the problem. So I would say that the more restrictive it is to the general design of a resource-based economy, the closer the approximations to reality. Excellent. Well, um... Roxanne, did you have anything further from your notes in regards to different things that may have happened, stories that you'd like to share? Jeez, I got lots of notes. Um, Go right on ahead. Every stock was really memorable. Um, New Zealand, we had the Maori <laughs> uh, people meet us, the original indigenous people from, uh, I guess they're from Hawaii and and ended up in New Zealand, many different locations they lived. But they're more, live more communally, and they still maintain that when they live together. Of course, they're dispersed in the culture as well. So they were the ones who understand, understood a lot about a resource-based economy, and they started the Zeitgeist movement in New Zealand. They started the chapter, and they gave us their, their um, original greeting from the, the tribal greeting, I don't know if that's the right word, the tribal greeting, but uh, when we came to the airport, so there was kind of a controversy with that because it was kind of old ways of greeting, but it was really interesting to see, to see some of their ancestors <clears throat> did live, came from the same group of people in Tuamoto, where Jacques often talks about the, the people that he met there who really influenced his values, really changed his values at the time when he went to Tuamoto to see how people lived, quote, primitively, you know, who weren't civilized. Right. And he learned a great deal there. And they still had some of the customs and, and behaviors, that uh, the, the better customs and behaviors left over from that time. So it was kind of like meeting old friends in a way. Um, it, it was really something. So... You know, these are the people that on the island, they, when they went out to, the, to fish, they would come up to shore and just throw fish to anybody who was standing on, uh, on the shore. And they would, um, like the, the tribe's people said, you know, I have my favorite. They, they like, excuse me, they liked Jack. So they offered, the, the head of the tribe there offered Jack his favorite wife to be able to, to um, you know, because... The values were so different, he was kind of taken back by that, but they wanted to share that with him because they liked him. So, um, and, you know, when they, Jacques asked if he could make an outrigger, if they could show him how to make an outrigger canoe because he wanted to share that with them. So a few days later, they came back and put him, gave him an outrigger canoe. And, um, and then 
a couple weeks later, it was sitting in the side near his hut, and he heard rustling in the bushes, and they came and they got it, and he watched them take it away, and they said, he said, well, what are you doing? And they said, you know use. So they took it so somebody else could use it if he wasn't using it. You know, sort of things like this, and how they all walked around nude, and, and they didn't have the values that they generate today when things are scarce and people cover up. They couldn't sell nude pictures of people. They didn't look at the, the woman's body. They looked at the eyes. So all these kinds of things were kind of handed down to the Maoris, too, who lived in New Zealand. And uh, so they really identified with this direction. So it was interesting meeting them. And do um, you have anything to add to that, Jack? No, except they were very wonderful people. They were, they were warm and wonderful people. Yeah, they were fantastic. One of the interesting things about them was kind of unique. You know, they were they were big people. The ones that we met, some of them were really tall and big and darker people, and and they had this little laugh. It was customary. You know, even laughs are learned and conditioned, but it was customary for for them to have this little high pitched squeak squeaky laugh, like like a little girl. So you see this grown man, really big and strong, and he go. <laughs> That's, kind of That's great, you know, because you think it would be something just the opposite, so it really shifts your point of reference around. So um, let me see. Then we went to from there. We we had several lectures in um, Australia, about four of them. They were all sold out. It was great. Um, we stayed in cities in every location. So. It really made me appreciate Jacques' designs for cities even more and our land even more to see just how much cities are are old and energy they're not they're they're not energy efficient at all. Most of them were old, dirty, smelled from car exhaust, noisy, tremendously noisy. Um, so it really contrary to the way Jacques designs the cities. You know, that's actually something I remember from when I was in Ireland, and I loved Ireland. I mean, if I could ever live anywhere, that would, that would be it. But um, the way that a lot of the, the towns were definitely designed, you know, it almost felt like they were designed without uh, cars in mind. Um, and also a lot of the, the laws for parking and things that we take for granted here didn't seem to exist. It, it reminded me of the model, the videos you see of the Model Ts muscling for rank to figure out where they're going to go on the street. But the thing that was the most harrowing was that houses were built right up to the edge of the road. So right. my, you know, my wife at the time and I would drive there and we'd be like, I can't even see if anybody's coming, you know, and Irish people, I guess, are used to that. But I literally was like, just stop and I'll go look. You know, I had to get out of the car to go make sure. <laughs> because another thing is in some places in Ireland, man, they would drive so freaking fast. <laughs> you know, they just shoot past you. But it was definitely an example of bad design. On the plus side, they did have those roundabouts, though, that I felt were a, a much better way of handling things like exits to major, major streets, because if you miss your exit, you just go around in a circle again. Um, it was another example of culture shock, though, because once you, we drive up to a roundabout, every American instinct you have tells you that that should be something you should stop at. So we stopped the first time, and there was all these angry Irish people behind us. Like, what are you doing? Because you know, we didn't know what, what a roundabout was. But anyway... Um, so, yeah, that, that sounds great. Now, go ahead and move on to the next one, I guess. Let's see. Um, went to Japan, and 
really there was a that, that was one of the least attended audiences that we had because because I think of the Jeff the um, yeah the language barrier Jacques was mentioning too the language barrier and the culture is so different the culture in Japan is so regimented um, which was kind of shocking too all the men all of them <laughs> wore black suits and white shirts to work and um, the women when they graduated from college were expected to get married and if they weren't married they were ostracized one of the, our good friends there that did some of the translation she left Japan because of that reason she didn't want to get married so she left Japan and then you know came back but um, she translated for us and became a very good friend of ours we saw, and we saw her farther down on the trip too and um, and Eindhoven when we lectured there. But that was an interesting thing. We met so many people along the way, and, and they became such good friends that they kind of followed us to different countries, and we, we got a chance to see them several times. And I'm sure several of them will be visiting us here too, which is really nice. It was, it was like leaving family. You know, it's like instant family when you meet people in the Zeitgeist movement because the values are so similar. And the values are not that similar with my own family, but I felt more like family with the people I met. And many locations, it was very, very hard to leave. Mm. Would you say uh, any bit like, you know, you'd kind of want to mention, kind of an honorable mention, you know, uh, just places that, you know, really tug at your heartstrings, so to speak, that you didn't want to leave? Well, I don't want to, you know, pick out certain ones and others, but, but so many of them were like that. Mm. So, um, Let's see, India was interesting. They, they only had about 40 members, and uh, what they did to try and get people to come, the members were so devoted that they bought, you know, the country's so big that some of them couldn't come to the lectures. So many of the members would buy 10, 20, 30 tickets and then have them give them away to other people where the lecture was being held because they couldn't come themselves and wanted to help support it. And transportation was really terrible throughout India. India was an interesting experience anyway. Um, but transportation was terrible. So some of the people, they traveled all day and all night, almost 15, 20 hours just to come to the lecture and then have to turn around and go right back and travel back again all day and all night on less than standard traveling conditions. So that was really nice. You know, that's uh, one of the things about India. There's a, a little documentary that I have linked on my website that you guys can watch for free. It's called Outsourcing, uh, 30 Days Outsourcing. It's like an episode of a show. Uh, there's a regular TV series called 30 Days, and this one was about outsourcing. And there's a gentleman whose job had been outsourced, and so they wanted to see if he could go to India and get his job back, meaning like, in, you know, and live in India just to, you know, as kind of a gag. But he went over there, and uh, a lot of the things he saw really bothered me. One of the most of them was, though, is that the people who were doing the equivalent of white-collar jobs here in the United States were living in improvised shacks that are not really much better than what you would see our homeless build, you know, under the subway tunnels or whatever. And to them, that was totally normal. Um, they've also got all of the people over there believing that the reason that they went over there to have them do these jobs was that supposedly Indian workers were superior and I'm not taking anything away from Indian workers, but of course they, they leave out the part about, oh, and we could pay you a tiny fraction of what you're worth <laughs> because you'll accept it. You know, they don't tell them any of that. They hit them with all this propaganda. I mean, did you guys witness any of the poverty in India, the effect I'm talking about? or Tremendous. You couldn't avoid it. Where we went to Bangalore was um, 
kind of a thriving city because the um, computer industry went there a lot. And they were kind of thriving. They were building new buildings, but right next to them, as you said, there was empty lots with cardboard shacks where people were living and begging in the streets. You know, there's still a lot of that. And the so, funny thing is people who live like that could even still be employed. That's And that's one of the reasons why the whole outsourcing thing, you know, I I argue with people about that all the time. And, you know, they, supposedly this, this moving jobs over there were supposed to improve their lives. But as Michael Moore pointed out in the, uh, the film, which one was it? It wasn't one of his films. It was the, the Yes Men, I believe it was. Those two gentlemen who walk around pretending to be the, the World Bank Organization or something like that. But anyway, you know, they talked to him, and he was like, you know, they told the people in Mexico, or they told us that the people in Mexico's lives would be so much better, you know, if, if you know, if they outsourced all the jobs there. And then he went back to Mexico 20 years later, and there's still a bunch of poor people all over the place, and nothing's improved, you know. So, I mean, it is, but yeah, I, I see where you're going with that, and I, I really, my heart goes out to those people, especially in that depressed economy, the ones who had to drive as far as they did to come see you. Um, you know, I guess at that point, it's kind of a quality uh, rather than quantity point, because you know that, that's a huge effort on their part to come see you guys, especially in that depressing economy. Yeah, and what happened in that city it wasn't a, a very attractive city at all, and uh, the land prices and rent and everything else and to live there is more expensive than New York, which I didn't think it was at all. But um, yeah, and people liked that city more so than the others, which were so depressed. That's just really sad. Um, all right. Well, I mean, the good thing is, is that, you know, you were able to give these people some, you know, essentially give them some hope, you know, a, a new direction, a new possibility, you know, for, I mean, uh, I imagine, I mean, uh, with the language barrier an issue over there, I mean, I guess there's a lot of English speaking people in India, particularly since all the call centers end up over there. No, they, they were pretty much English speaking with a heavy accent, <laughs> but, um, yeah, then we went to Slovenia, which was a good stop as well, you know. Um, met some great people, too, that we saw many times afterwards. Dennis Yee there and a lot of great people. And Greece was really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of activities in the streets. There's a lot of protesting because things are really bad in Greece. And because the conditions were so bad, then people start to look around and ask, you know, where do we go or what do we do and look for alternatives. So we had business people, scientists, professors, and, and a lot of people that we didn't see elsewhere sponsoring us and really appreciating what we were talking about. You see, that's a really relevant point, Roxanne, because that kind of points back to Jock's uh, point earlier that you know it's easier to do these sorts of things during a collapse because they're all willing to listen to you when the system's not working like a well-oiled machine. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's great that you're able to meet those people. Now, I mean, I know there was a, a yeah, there were like protests and all sorts of stuff going on in Greece. The last time I checked about it, and of course, only so much of it makes it to the mainstream media, but uh, worker strikes and uh, all sorts of stuff in that poor country. Um, now, I mean, so. How how receptive were they? All these you know these professionals that we were able to talk to. I'd say very receptive. I would say that uh, we attended many meetings of the Zeitgeist members. Other than the scheduled meetings, we had hundreds of meetings with members and answered individual questions which they had. 
which was very important, and I answer questions that they had in mind. So I would say that even those readings were about 95% effective. That's yeah, and, and the, the group in in Greece took this really seriously. You know, some of the, the members had two or three jobs, and they still worked for the Zeitgeist um, chapter and the Zeitgeist movement, the Venus Project. They took it they they looked at it as another job. They worked at it every day. And the group that, you know, unfortunately, the group that we met is not the official chapter anymore. I don't know what happened with that, or I don't know what was going on, but these people really worked their butts off. They they did a lot of activism. They, they met with a lot of, um, they, they wanted to affiliate a lot with the university professors that, these particular university professors from the, um, what is it, the University of Aegean in the island of Syros, they got in touch with us several years ago, I think, and they really sympathized with the direction of Venus Project, and they said that, that we gave them an incentive to do several things, to try and out, go out there and, and do clean sources of, en of energy and, and demonstrate technologies that would, that would help people, you know, and so they met with us. They attended the lectures as well, and there are about four of them that we, we took a boat ride with the Zeitgeist chapter, the, the people from the Zeitgeist chapter, we took a boat ride several hours out to another island where we saw their first experiment with desalinization, and it was a little island, a hundred people had had no water, no, no source of clean water, and they built this desalinization plant, but the government wouldn't let them use it because they had contracts with huge freighters to take water out there, and they were building this little water, well, a large water tank, and, and they would get their water that way. They couldn't get the free water from the desalinization plant that these scientists from this university did. And they put up for an experiment, and it was being the water was pumped in continuously, but they legally were not allowed to use it. You know that so shows you how corrupt the, the government was there. So yeah, but remember, you know, and, and as I engage my sarcasm, um, supposedly the the capitalist money system is is what innovates technology and makes use of it the most effectively. You know, that that whole thing is is so silly. It reminds me of a. Um, the clothes like that the soldiers wear, um, you, you can learn about this on, you know, Iraq for Sale, I think is the documentary I, I watched about this. But Halliburton, the company that Dick Cheney owns that cleans the clothing, he said that, like this one soldier said that he would put his clothes in the laundry, he'd get them back and they were grimier than they were when he put them in there. And when you're working in the desert, you're not interested in putting on grimy clothing. He started washing his clothing in the sink with his own detergent and his sergeant yelled at him and told him he was not allowed to wash his own clothing because they had that contract with Halliburton. It's yeah. so backwards and ridiculous. As soon as you apply money to anything, it's it's really too bad. But, well, I mean, it's it's good that things went so well in Greece. I mean, when you consider the irony, you know, Greece is supposed to be the country that's kind of a, the grandfather of reason. Um, so where would you – go ahead. We did take time there to do a little sightseeing. We went to the Acropolis there. And um, it was funny, on this little island that had 100 people, they knew about the Venus Project, and they gave us a plaque for our work concerning a resource-based economy. 
This happened several places, little obscure places that we went to. Like um, when we were flying out of Spain, we went, we flew, we happened to stop at Malark, what is it, Malarkey? Or, I don't remember the name of this little island. Um, but there were about 12, a, a dozen Zygeist members, and when we stopped over for about an hour or so at the airport, they all came to meet us, which was great. So they're all over the world. Well, um, all right. So what was the next stop that you wanted to talk about? The Netherlands. We had uh, several things happen in the Netherlands. Um, the, the people who sponsored our lecture there were from the ICSE, International Center for Sustainable Excellence. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a, a weekend when there were several things going on. There was a the Earth Charter was having its 10th anniversary, and they had a another group of people who were speaking to business people, and they asked Jacques to join them to speak to these people. And because he spoke there, then we were invited to the Earth Charter's 10th anniversary at the, the Queen's Palace at The Hague. Um, and it was from the UN. They, you know, the Earth Charter was put on by the UN, and it was started by Gorbachev, and we were kind of hoping that maybe Gorbachev would be there and we'd be able to talk to him about the direction of the Venus Project, but I think the last minute he, he didn't come. We were expecting him to come. But anyhow, I don't know if anybody's familiar with the Earth Charter, but they are the group associated with the UN who is supposed to be the forefront in fighting for environmental, environmental um, protection sustainability, human rights, building sustainability in a peaceful global society. But it was it was really kind of horrifying. We sat the whole day there while the Queen came in, made her performance and left again, and um, listened to emotional, very emotional pleas for, for all these things that they advocate. And we got a chance to stand up and talk about the direction of the Venus Project very briefly, you know, me and Jacques. And um, it was like watching deers in a headlight. They had no idea. They were stunned. They had no idea what we were talking about. We are talking to them about how you can't have sustainability when you have banks keeping you in perpetual debt and keeping countries in perpetual debt. They, they had no idea where the problems Arose. You know, they didn't know the causes of the problems. So it, it really got nowhere. We really didn't have enough time to present anything, but whatever we did present, they had no idea. And it really reminded me of what Jack always talks about, how we talk at people rather than to them. Right. They had no background to understand this, no, nor was there any inquiry. But they had bankers and lawyers and, and you know, businessmen who who were heading this as well. So, and we really got shut up too, because we, we separated into certain groups for about an hour during lunchtime. And we got off to the, the Sustainable Cities group. And um, Jacques was supposed to speak for, for several minutes. We were supposed to show the, the video. Somehow the video didn't work. And when Jacques spoke, they really shut him up before he was finished, which kind of annoyed me. So I grabbed the mic and started talking about the resource-based economy. And the moderator 
interrupted me as well, and I was shouting over him at the end, <laughs> but it went nowhere. So it it was really kind of frightening, the whole thing. You know, I, re- I remember talking to you about that, and it's funny because of all the crazy conspiracy theories that came up from that. And I'm actually really happy that you told that story because the you know the some of the people who are just you know just waiting with their you know with their uh, you know just drool coming out of their mouths hoping to be able to prove that we're all part of some evil elite new world order said oh and then they went to this evil conference and and they were obviously you know neck to neck and elbow to elbow with that queen who's a member of the Bilderberg group and I'm just like that's not what happened at all guys it just it amazes me because the stuff that people will just make up you know. And it's, it's like, as you just you just told the story, you told the story, and in the story, uh, you went there, you talked to some people, they weren't really interested in what you had to say, and in fact, they kind of tried to censor you, um, which, it actually reminds me of another one of those New World Order conspiracies that was linked when somebody was talking about the, oh, I forget the name, it's CIS or something, and I talked to Jock about it, actually, on one of the previous shows, was that that's supposed to be the, uh, like, the, the World Charter thing is supposed to be this New World Order you know, nonsense that's supposed to be the this thing that everybody's going to sign. We're all going to get rid of our rights. And then, and then this other thing, the CIS, the Center for Human Studies or whatever, you know, Jacques told me the story about that. I think I asked him about that in Michigan. I, I can't remember. And then Jacques explained to me, he was like, well, I went there, I talked, they didn't really want to hear what I had to say. And in fact, some of them were kind of rude. And that's like, it was like 1984. Right. You know, the story, it was a terrible monetary interpretation of the future. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, and, and but the point is, though, is that you didn't go there and all, like, you know, sit down and have a, a big club meeting on how to take over the planet. And, and the thing about it is that even with, you know, there were some people that were on the guest list for that that were supposedly, like, high and the mighty, but I've looked into the history of that particular group, and or and they're, like, struggling for funding. You know, if they were because even if you look on Wikipedia, ironically, it says that that was supposed to be the the secret, you know, strategists of the New World Order. Well, then why is it begging for money? It, it just it comes back to the same kind of silly theories that we hear. And remember, you're supposed to be bankrolled by the Rothschilds, and yeah, and, and, and that is why we're you know looking for donations and maybe having to sell our land is because we're obviously bankrolled by the New World Order. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. All kinds of artificiality. Right. So, all right. Well, that out of the way, I'm actually really glad you told that story because uh, people have taken that out of context um, and made little videos of it because I guess they talked to you a little bit about it on TeamSpeak one day. Um, yeah, I had no idea what they were talking about. I didn't know what they were getting at. Otherwise, I would have answered differently. But, you know, I, I just took this very innocently, you know, because they were trying to pin me down saying, are you associated with the United Nations? Said no, you know, and couldn't think of anything. And then they brought this up, and I thought, oh, that was ridiculous. Well, you know, I don't think that people remember that, you know, you guys have been doing what you've been doing long since before you ever met Peter. And there's nothing wrong with what Peter's doing, but then they always assume that this must mean that you guys are in on all the conspiracy theories. So, I mean, when I talked to you about it earlier, you were like, you know, you don't buy into the conspiracy theory that the United Nations is some big evil thing that's bent on world domination. So if any interest you might have in talking to them is for the purpose of getting this, you know, this idea out of the same thing you did at that conference that, you know, with the Queen. 
you know, was you tried to tell your message, and since your message is a little bit too egalitarian, obviously they didn't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, well, they were kind of do-gooders. I mean, there were, some of the people were really nice people, really meant well, but they they were trying to fix things within this system. They thought that could be done. They, they had no idea what, what was causing the problems. They had no idea about the monetary system, the banking system. They appealed to ethics and goodwill. And right. it, it doesn't work that way. Because that's working so great. <laughs> yeah. So so after that, they, they took a picture of everybody who attended that meeting at the steps of the palace at the Hague. And so Jacques and I got right up front, right in the middle, because we wanted to have the Venus Project represented there. <laughs> so evidently that picture was going around on that video that was supposed to be against, you know, saying that we we're part of the New World Order. Because you clearly, you know, were best buddies with everybody there. I just, you know, and everything that they have there at that point is all conjecture and just invented stuff. That the funny thing is, is that it's when people do stuff like this. I mean, it's recently. Um, I just had uh, actually something that came up about that because the, the the silly people, in particular, if they have a religious problem with what we're doing, the ones who said that we worship the morning star because Venus is the morning star. And then I had to pull out a biblical quote at the end of Revelation. It's like the last line of Revelation. Jesus says he's the morning star. And it's funny because I, I brought that out, and it, it shut so many people up because at that point, I mean, it, as it is already, it was, it was like Kevin Bacon logic. It was, well, Venus is the morning star, and the morning star must be Lucifer. And I was like, no, the morning star is Jesus. They're like, what are you talking about? So I gave the revelation quote. If anybody wants that, you can email me at, at vtv at vradio.org, and I'll be happy to share with you the actual quote from the Bible where Jesus says he's the morning star. The whole argument is ridiculous, but of course, you know, I, you know most of these people were not going to be jumping up all up on the idea of, oh, okay, well, then I guess the Venus Project must be the Jesus Project. They didn't like that interpretation because that doesn't really suit their, their interests in making us look evil. Um, so, anyway... On a more constructive note, thank you for sharing with us that particular story. Did you, do you have anything else you wanted to bring up? Well, let's see. Um, and we went to Spain. It was a tremendous group. They, too, are in the same position as, as Greece. And uh, a, a huge group in Spain that are doing a lot. They're, they're really great. Um, and we, you know, after going to all the cities that we did that were dirty and noisy and and the buildings all looked the same, and right up to the road, like you talked about. Um, there was an area where some of Jacques' favorite architects, like uh, Santiago Calatrava and Felix uh, Candela, Candela, yeah, is it Candela or Candela? Yeah. yeah. Um, they both of those did a complex called the City of Arts and Sciences, which was a really big complex, several buildings with large walkways and waterways and it was just very refreshing new and modern and clean in the middle of all those cities it was very nice it, it's very ornate though it's not as functional and uh, sustainable as Jacques design but but they're free-flowing architecture and it was a pleasure after all the cities were in so then we went to Austria and um, Leo worked really hard to put the, on a lecture within three weeks um, and Stockholm, and, and Denmark, Scotland, all, all great lectures. Oh, in Dublin, we had an interesting experience. We had our first heckler in Dublin. Yeah. Do you want to go to that one? 
No, we didn't do that. <laughs> okay, well, there was a woman. It was we had a balcony in Dublin, and it was a full house. It was great, and um, the audience was really boisterous. They're boisterous in Dublin, just like in Greece. But um, so we had a balcony, and when we were doing questions, we heard this woman in the in the balcony shouting. You know, we had a mic right in front of us where people came down and asked questions. But we heard this woman in the background shouting, so I was trying to listen to her to address some of her concerns. And then she starts reciting biblical um, passages from the, you know, from the Bible. And um, the audience just laughed her down. They just all started laughing and shut her up. So the people asked a lot of questions there. And this woman came down, an older woman, had the last question. We didn't know it was the same woman. But she started to ask shots about the Tower of Babel and how how the Tower of Babel started. And so Jacques was trying to explain to her how probably language evolved, just like inventions evolved serially very slowly over time, and trying to give her this insight. And she said, well, were you there? And Jacques said, well, were you at the Tower of Babel? And everybody just started laughing. That little clip is on the internet somewhere from Dublin, but it was great. Simple um, clips like that are the ones you treasure. <laughs> yeah, that was our only heckler we ever had. That's excellent. <laughs> winner. Um, so I don't know. The rest of the lectures went just really great from the UK, and had a lot. Of, we saw a lot of old friends there because we had lectured in London before that. The well, Jack lectured in London before that. And uh, that was we had two lectures there, and so we met a lot of close friends in in London. You know that's where the Venus Project Design Team is. I wanted to mention that the Venus Project Design Team did a lot of work. At, uh, we had an exhibit at Eindhoven. I didn't mention that. It was a great exhibit. Um, Andrew and Yulita came, and and Tom from London and Jason filmed, and Tom Tom spoke there also. But it was a it was a really good exhibit and for what we had, the financing that we had to do. Um, Andrew did a lot of work to put that together, put Jack's work together and animate it, and a lot of other people helped from, from the design team that he had put together. So that was really nice. Yeah, can, you, uh, can you tell the viewers, or the viewers, the listeners, and me what Eindhoven is? Is that like a museum or something? No, Eindhoven's a town in the Netherlands. Oh, okay. Yeah. Any, uh, did you have any, like, did, did you do anything in New Zealand? I, I can't remember. Were, were you guys? Yes, we had two lectures in New Zealand. Did you get, Fantastic country. Did you get, I'm sorry, did you get contacted at all by those New Zealand people? Did, did you ever talk to them or did just never? Yes, they, they did try and approach us, um, but in, they're, they're just off on their own doing something else. And, um, as a lot of people are taking Jacques' work and interpreting it in a different way and going off and trying to do their own thing. So we didn't want it to be called the Venus Project because it wasn't. And if it failed, we didn't want to be associated with it because it, we felt it would fail. So um, we didn't want them collecting money off of Jacques' designs. Right. And that's what they were, they were doing even before they were talking to us. So we did tell them at one time if you're because they approached us, and, and they had started a website. Maybe they met well, I don't know, and wanted to do the Venus Project and used a lot of Jacques' designs in it. And, but they had a lot of other things that was not the Venus Project. As I said, it was their own interpretation. 
And they got in touch with us saying, okay, we, we need to get in touch with you now because there might be a copyright problem because we want to use your house designs. We told them that they, we couldn't send them our house designs or anything else unless they came here, learned about the Venus Project, made sure what they were doing was really this direction that they really have to work with us in order to do that. Then they could have the designs, but they never made it out. So, yeah, that's what, what happened there. Um, so, I guess, as you know, we got to, we went to Germany and Paris and Montreal, and then Jacques got ill. It was six months on the road. He did fantastic. He really put out a tremendous amount of effort. It did get very tiring after three months. You know, we were in another country every week and uh, gave a lecture once a week, but not only that, did a lot of radio, television. There was always media when people could could get that set up. Some countries couldn't get it, which is understandable. But once there was something in the mainstream media, then everybody wanted to be in on it. So a lot of times there were, even the Zeitgeist people were doing a lot of filming. So so there, it was a lot of work, too. And um, Go ahead. We, were very, we felt very badly that we had to cut out the last four lectures. You know, we gave a lecture in Montreal, and we couldn't make the last four lectures in Canada. Hopefully, maybe we'll be able to get back to Vancouver and, and Toronto. We'd like to. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I know they've, they've actually asked me more than once. I've had listeners, you know, email me or whatever. You know, is Jacques going to be able to make it to Canada? You know, um, I've also had some people in the United States who have said, you know, will Jacques come to California? You know, different places like that, you know, around the United States. I'd like to see you guys. Um, but it sounds like, you know, you had a wonderful experience. And, you know, I hope that uh, after everything catches up, you know, um, I, I, do, I mean, obviously, you guys are both here, but, you know, since we've had, you know, just rumors about this, do you, do you want, I mean, can you reassure everybody that Jock is okay? Because we keep getting, you know, it's like, are you sure he's okay? Are you sure he's okay? Do you want to shed some light on that? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm coming along real well. Um, mainly, though, I really want to answer questions people have. Mm-hmm. Questions that really will help them understand the direction of the Venus Project. Right, so if there are any questions out there, the trip went really well, but you know, that was the reason we went on the trip to help people understand this direction. Jackie is doing a lot better. He gained a lot more strength and um, a lot better than when he first came back. He still needs more rest, though. What we'd like to try and set up with the help of, of uh, Jason Lord is, is trying to help us do this, is set up a virtual tour so uh, we can give the tour from here, and many people could come on to it throughout the world and throughout the United States, but we're, we're working on that. I would, yeah, I would, um, that Justin TV technology that I use to broadcast our uh, our lecture, never, let me say our lecture, or the interview we did while I was at your home would probably be very useful for that. Um, very inexpensive, and you can use web webcam technology. We can talk about that more off the air, but... Uh, Justin TV is the benefit that it's also a social network, so people can just wander in just because there's a lot of people there and ask what's going on. It's a good way to get new people. So, um, well, people are definitely glad that you know, Jacques is doing well. I do have one caller. I don't know if they're here just to listen or if they have a question. I'm going to go ahead and bring them on. Um, caller from the 626 area code. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. Did you, you have a question for Jacques and Roxanne? Yes, I do, actually. Um, within the constraints of uh, the universities, the general universities that we have now, what would you recommend 
someone to study if they want to help the Venus Project most? Would you recommend somebody study if they want to help the Venus Project in college? The book called The Best That Money Can Buy. Anything in the sciences, too, we always mention. I think you meant specifically what classes should he take in college. He's in college and he'd like to know what what he should take. Robotics, uh, automation, mass production, geology, any branch of the physical sciences would help. Stay away from business, law, investment banking. Stay away from all those non-productive parasitic fields. And, and you know, the art, arts, if you have it as a hobby, but really science and technology, computer sciences, mainly science and technology. What do you think of biology? What about biology? Well, biology is all right. Any branch of the physical sciences would help. But uh, I would say become familiar with the Venus Project and its proposals, its city designs, its schools, its methods of arriving at decisions, how cities are designed, who makes the decisions, how they arrive at their decisions. All of those questions are real. I haven't had a decent question in all the trip so far, not an original question. Okay. Um, did you have anything else, caller? Um I could ask one more question that might be relevant. What is what is the referent you use for the word culture? Uh, cultural anthropology has fallen apart because of that word. I wonder what you what your point of view is on the word culture. What's your point of view on the word world, word culture? It doesn't mean anything unless it's laid out in detail. In other words. We are not civilized yet. We have a very primitive language that we use that was designed hundreds of years ago, and it makes it difficult to talk to people. People usually don't have a reference for what they're talking about. They talk about a world in which there's kindness, understanding, cooperation, but no description of how to attain that world. And without a description or an operant method of doing that, you're still in the dark. That goes for words such as peace and love and justice and human rights. Without a description of what you mean by that. For example, in a resource-based economy, all the nations that join us will have access to, to the necessities of life without the need for money. In other words, if you don't make it possible for people to access the necessities of life, you will have trouble all along, no matter what name you call the system. No system can operate the way they operate today. There will always be wars and riots and depressions as long as you use the old value system. It takes a different value system to outgrow the need for aberrant behavior. Our concerns are to clean up the environment, take care of nature, restore the oceans to as near a natural condition as possible, and to work together with all the other nations in one gigantic cooperative venture, namely 
the elevation of all human beings to their highest potential. Anything less than that will fail. Was there anything else, caller? No, that 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 made things very clear. Thank you. All right. Um, just to update everybody, thank you. So thanks again for calling in, by the way, and thank you for tuning into V Radio. Um, were you listening to the show via the the switchboard, or like I just yeah. need to know whether or not I should leave yeah. you on, or if I should hang up? <laughs> uh, yeah, I am listening off the switchboard. Okay, that's all right. Then I'll just go ahead and mute you and. Um, anybody who would like to call in, you can either use the phone number. It's local to New York. It's 347-945-7746. That's 347-945-7746. And if you push one, then you're, it'll raise the hand on there, and I'll know that you want to call in. Um, you can mention it in the chat room that I monitor more than the switchboard. If you would like to be added via Skype, my Skype is VTB115. B is in Victor, T is in Tom, B is in Victor, 115. If you want to be added via Skype, then PM me on Skype to let me know that you would like to be added to the show because I actually have to add you. Um, if you try to call in via that, I'll just have to reject the call because every time I've ever tried to add somebody to an ongoing conference, I always end up hanging up on everybody. So that being said, um, looks like, uh, nope, okay, we do have somebody who wants to be added. Let me go ahead and pull on, uh, I guess their name is Thomas Johnson out of New Jersey, United States. Let me go ahead and add them. Um, may take just a moment. I have a lot of contacts in my list. But uh, And uh, to those of you who are just joining, if you've never listened to V Radio before, you can make a free Blog Talk Radio account that will allow you, first of all, to be able to log into chat and participate with the listeners. And you can also follow this show and Peter's show and Thunder's show by clicking the follow button, and you will get advanced email notifications to state that um, basically that there is going to be a show. It will give you the time. And if for some reason you missed the show, don't worry about that. We have archives. Um, all of the shows at Blog Talk Radio are automatically archived. You can also visit my website, and I've got a whole list of them there, uh, just hours and hours of programming, lots more uh, interviews with Jacques, interviews with Peter, interviews with filmmakers, um, various experts, um, all available at vradio.org. So once again, you know, feel free to check that out. And thanks to, thanks to everybody who supported us so far. Um, I'm almost down there. I'm getting to the T's now. <laughs> Thomas Johnson, here we go. I'm going to add you to the call. It's ringing. See if he picks up. Funny that you guys can hear that because I can't hear it. There we go, Mr. Johnson. Are you there? Yes. Well, yes, sir. I, how you doing? Not too bad. Did you have a call? Uh, can you uh, hear me? Yes, I can hear you just fine. Did you have a question for Jacques and Roxanne? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm having a difficult time uh, trying to get viewpoints across to different people who have a uh, come from a different background. Um, I'm currently in a situation where. I'm near um, Andrews Air Force Base, and there's a lot of military people around here and a lot of religious people, and they just have no understanding of where I'm coming from. So I'm trying to find better ways to relate to people in their value system. Okay, Jacques, I guess the question would be, he would like advice on how best to relate these ideas to people who are from a military background or a religious background or a religious military background. How all I can say... Uh, from a military background, 
people in the military are killing machines. We would take all the soldiers, send them back to school to become problem solvers, not killing machines. When you kill people, bomb cities, you build hatred over long periods of time, which are going to make it very difficult to affect social change. The only way you work social change is by informing the military people of what their job ought to be. They think that they're there to defend the country. They're only defending the old social institutions that put people in power, that gave people money, power, and control. What we really need is a global technology that will take care of human needs so that there's no reason for war or invasion or killing. The fact that we kill means we're not civilized yet. We do not live in a world that's civilized. We live in a transitional system. Hello? Yes, you have a question? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Did, did you have Oh, no, I'm good. Oh, okay. Continue, Jacques. No, I was just listening. Just listening. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Jacques. I'm trying to tell you that what soldiers will do in the future is learn how to bridge the difference between nations, not kill, to learn how to share ideas with other nations and to share the Earth's resources so that we all become protected of all the Earth's resources for the benefit of all the world's people. It's the separate nations that's the problem, where they're all gunning for their own advantage. This is the problem. The problem is that we live in a primitive system with primitive values and primitive language. And as long as you have armies, navies, prisons, police, we are not civilized. Now, let me give you just a a piece of advice from myself and my own experience in dealing with the military and trying to get them to relate to the Venus Project. You generally have to get through to them that that something's wrong in the first place. And you you really have have your work cut out for you because they've been conditioned to think that everything is fine. Um, My advice to you would be if you can get through to them, because there is one thing they can relate to, you can get through to them about the fact that they're being exploited by the money system. You can get through to them by the fact of explaining to them the causes of various wars. Most of them already kind of have an inkling of that. So my own experience has been, you know, you you need to talk to people who understand their language, as Jacques has recommended on more than one occasion. Figure out what their value system is, and then after you have figured out how to effectively communicate with them, um, that's when you're able at that point to try to get them to really see that, um, unfortunately, as soldiers, they're not really part of the solution. They're part of the problem. Then they're going to look at you and they're going to ask you, okay, well, what's your idea? And that's when you tell them everything Jock just said. Soldiers should be problem solvers. You should be dissolving the, you know, the reasons to fight rather than fighting wars. Um, that would be my advice to you as far as to dealing with people from that background. Um, when it comes to a religious background, Jock, would you like to talk about that? A religious yeah, background? A lot of people have said to me, the trouble with you, Jock, is you're trying to make the world a better place. My kingdom is up in heaven. But they forget. They don't even understand the religion they follow. Because in religion it says, the Lord's Prayer, that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's no business in heaven, no money, no private property. As long as you've got those things, you're going to have problems. 
And you see, in the Bible, it says, thou shalt not kill. It doesn't say killing Wednesdays and holidays are all right. They don't even understand what they're reading. In the Bible, it says you're supposed to love your enemy. You're not supposed to kill. If a man strikes you, you turn the other cheek. I've never met a Christian. Do you know what that means? I've never met a person that behaves that way. No, I absolutely agree with you there, Jock. Recently on the last show, actually, I had a very long debate with a Christian. And, um, and I, you know, the things that I've been doing to try to get across to Christians was just in my own experience. I actually had a Jehovah's Witness, of all people, talk to me um, not long ago. And he was actually a very pleasant, intelligent person. But I, I tried to explain to him that, you know, uh, that favoring the system as it currently was is certainly not Christian. Uh, you can't be a Christian in this system. You can't give to the poor. You can't help take care of people. The system isn't designed for that. In fact, it's the opposite. Um, and I also usually point out to them a little anthropological fact that most of them are not aware of, was that apparently the first Christians were actually communists, um, anarcho-communists more specifically. The idea of sharing, taking care of one another, that's a Christian value. Um, there's nothing Christian about capitalism. There's nothing Christian about a monetary system. In fact, if you even if you read your own Bible, Jesus, you know, talks about you know how it's easier for a man to pass through the or a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Even according to the wisdom that they supposedly practice, you can't get to what they're talking about. You cannot live a Christian lifestyle in any system. You're right. Be kind. You're absolutely right, Neil. You cannot talk to people. You can only educate them if they listen to you. They don't understand the Bible. They don't understand the teachings of Christ. You know, they, they wouldn't wear a cross around their neck because that's what man did to Christ. It has nothing to do with his teachings. What they have to remember is that Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple. Now they're all back in controlling the whole show. Religion sold out to the money system. This is what we're trying to get across. What the Venus Project does it takes all religious teachings and designs a way of life to personify those teachings. You know, they say in heaven you have to wait till you get to heaven to get whatever you want. But the Venus Project is trying to make a heaven on earth. In heaven, the Christian, the Christian people, there's no money in their heaven. There's no private property. It's what they're advocating. We're trying to make it a reality here. That's absolutely right, Roxanne, and I, I have a lot more success generally just kind of trying to describe to them what it is that we suggest. And I think another thing that often comes up is people project into this, they always assume we're going to rob them of their religious rights, their rights to be religious. Jacques, I, I remember the Living on Purpose interview where you explained that all religions would have equal time in a, in a resource-based economy, you know, TVP-designed city. Can you talk about individual religious rights in your proposed system? Well, actually, there's no need for charity because there are no slums, there are no hungry people, no armies, no navies, no prisons, no police. And if that isn't worth living for, I don't know what is. That is the most spiritual approach to humankind. Changing our faith, getting away from the materialistic concepts of what they call the accumulation of wealth, property, and power. This is the... You know, we had a, a local minister. We have... Venus is very small, like 600 people, but they have three churches. So 
So sometimes a local minister goes door to door, and they came here and um, came in and talked to us for a while, and they asked us, they asked Jack, how come you don't attend church? And he said, I'm too busy doing the Lord's work. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's, that's really great. You know, and it's it's funny. I, I think that, well, that was like, you know, when I had the conversation with the gentleman that I talked to, I mean, he was very, the one I had on my show last, and to those of you who haven't heard that show, I've actually got a lot of good ratings for it. I would strongly advise that you uh, give a chance to check out the last show. Because um, he, he did conduct himself very well, but he also had a lot of, well, I mean, to be blunt, irrational beliefs. But he was just terrified that we were going to tell him he wasn't allowed to be a Christian. And since I've never heard anything to that effect whatsoever, I mean, there are a lot of atheists involved with the movement, but I haven't heard anybody say anything about not being allowed to do it. And, and more to the point, it's not even uh, effective. As you've always pointed out, Roxanne, even if you did want to stamp out religion, it wouldn't work. It would just go underground anyway. That's right. And, and what I generally have to remind them is that, you know, these are things that even most Christians understand, as I say, it's not that we don't want you to have a right to have your religion. It's that we don't want any kind of irrational theocratic element dictating to other people what we're to do. Neil, I don't want religion to be a verbal hobby. I want it to be manifest. Larry King once asked me what I thought of Christianity. I said, it's a wonderful idea. When are they putting it into practice? (laughs) I never met a Christian, a person that loved his enemy, that shared his values with everyone, that was not concerned with material things. I've never met a Christian. And what we want to do is translate all of the biblical teachings of all religions into a way of life for all people. If they need something to go to church on Sunday for or whatever they need, whatever day, they could have a building to do that in the Venus Project if that's where where they're at. But that building would be used for other things during the week. It wouldn't just be something to worship in. Right. Yep, these are all actually great points. Now, Thomas, you put something in the Skype chat that I'm going to go ahead and respond to as well. When, you, when you're talking about people who have very aggressive language and, and they cut you off constantly, you have to remember that when you're talking to somebody about this direction, a lot of people get very scared when they think somebody is, is challenging their identity. Um, the, the example that I usually give is uh, from the movie Chasing Amy, if you've ever seen it, but it's a Jay and Silent Bob movie. But at one point, for example, the girl who was a lesbian in the story was very upset with the man who she was falling in love with because her identity was to be a lesbian. So she was very, like, you know, put off by the fact that she was her identity was being challenged. There are a lot of people who identify who they are by their religion, or even by their devotion to the to the market system, the libertarians, they if they act as though you're 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 attacking them by pointing out the the, the flaws in what they're doing. And, and unfortunately, one of the first things Jacques told me in Michigan when I told him I wanted to be a spokesman, he was like, "Well, sometimes you're going to run into these people who are just so conditioned and so essentially damaged by the system. Don't waste your time with them. In the time that you're spending." on these people who are probably never going to change until they see our ideas manifested, you could, you're could you losing dozens of people, the, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, that you could be getting in the, in the energy that you're wasting butting heads with these people. So, the only real morality is taking care of the earth. The earth is a beautiful gift we all have, 
if we destroyed the oceans, the atmosphere, the water table, I would say that is in violation of all religious teachings. First, we must take care of the environment that supports all life. Then we must work with one another and treat one another as brothers and sisters, regardless of race, color, or creed. If we do not do that, we will destroy one another and the earth. Did you have anything further, caller? Uh, no, that's, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, you know, I need to stop trying to talk to people that don't want to learn anyway. Well, we you want to know that we don't want to kill anybody. We don't want to hurt anybody. We don't want to torture anybody. We just ask them to take good care of the earth. It's the only planet we have to live on and learn to work together, share ideas with one another, and build a future that's worthy of human beings. Not we've got damaging, old, unproven system of public opinion that has no basis for social conduct. Now, um, thanks again for calling in, Thomas. And uh, if you ever, once again, you know, thank you for supporting B Radio. Uh, and uh, I will definitely, I hope to hear more from you in future shows. Okay, no problem. All right. Now, we yeah. had a, uh, go ahead, Neil, yeah, we're not against religion. All we wanted to do is make it manifest as a way of life, not a verbal hobby. I understand completely, actually. That was a really good answer. Uh, and I think that uh, people, they, they just kind of knee-jerk, and you know, they, they really get scared of anything that's going to take their religion. And one of the things that always kind of bothers me about it that gets that's a little backwards is that in many cases, sometimes these people think that their freedom of religion should also include their ability to limit what other people do. Um, they think it's an expression of their freedom of religion, for example, to tell two gay people that they're not allowed to get married uh, they think it's an expression of their religion, you know, and that we're inhibiting their freedom if we don't allow them to make profanity illegal. Um, I went round and round with the, the Constitution Party, is another third party, actually, that, that, that exposed that. And I don't think they understand that, you know, it's not that uh, we're concerned about them having a religion. It, it's when they want some of the more uh, the controlling aspects of religion, you know, are a problem. And also when, when the people that they're so worried about, the elite, you know, the supposed NWO people use religion as a tool to control people, like the, the Japanese emperor uh, using Shinto to convince uh, pilots to become suicide bombers and blow their planes up, you know, to, you know just to continue their, their, their harsh regime. These are examples of the misuses of religion that I would say we oppose. Would you agree with that? And caller from Canada, stay there. I'm going to get to you. Go ahead, Jacques. Neil, it's what religion has become. It's sold out to the money system. It has nothing to do with the teachings of Christ anymore. It is a business. I agree entirely. Well, now we have a caller from Canada. Caller from the 905 area code from Canada. You're on the air. Uh, hello. Uh, thanks for taking my call. And uh really appreciate you taking the time to put Roxanne and Jacques on. It's uh an honor to uh, hear your viewpoints. Um, my uh, question was uh, related to uh, your idea of what time is. Like, basically, I noticed with the monetary system, it's so tied to what time is, as in time is money. And I think we don't have proper understanding of what 
time is scientifically. And I was wondering what your viewpoint on that is, and also um, what your how do you think other civilizations live outside let's of Earth? Let's do it. One, must... Let's do it. I'm sorry to interrupt. Let's do it one question at a time, just okay, to make sure ahead. that he gets to both of them. I have no problem leaving you on the air until all of your questions are answered. Now, now, Jacques, his first question is: What do you think of the science science's understanding of what time is? Well, I don't concern myself with what other people think time is. But time to me, I can only describe what it means to me. Time means change. If there's no change, you can't measure time. So I would say that time, all things change. The dinosaurs are gone. The plants that used to exist five million years ago are undergoing change. The continents used to be joined together. Now they're floating on magma. So all things undergo change. That's the only constant. And for the word time, I use change. Also, your idea of the refrigerator is interesting in regards to time. Well, I don't think that's relevant exactly because a man named Spencer once tried to describe what living systems were. He says a living system can maintain a relatively constant temperature. If it gets cold, the body generates heat. If it gets hot, the body perspires. But that's exactly what a refrigerator does. So is it alive? What do you mean by life? When a person talks about living and non-living systems without super detail, you have no real conversation or the basis of it. No, I was talking about your example when Jacques has given examples before in, in regards to time as being changed. If you leave something outside, a piece of fruit or something outside, it changes. Yes, but when you put it in the refrigerator, it, it, the rate of decay flows. So you could roughly say that a refrigerator is a kind of time machine because yes. it, change, it changes uh, the rate of change. Yes, and I think that time is not a fixed condition. You know, I once asked Einstein whether he believed in God. And he said, which one? <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite quotes, Jock. Now, uh, caller, um, what was your second question? Uh, well, my second question was related to, um, you know, it, it, if there's civilizations outside of, you know, our galaxy, I mean, would they have gone past? Like, I usually have conversations with other radio hosts on, uh, you know, how how far maybe other civilizations have progressed. And my view has always been they must have figured out what time and space is to progress past a monetary system. Everything is man-made. Man makes up time. He makes up Saturday, Sunday, Monday. All those are artificial things made up by man. So really, uh, I really believe, I have no doubt that there's, civilizations outside of our world. The proof that I have is that they haven't come here. <laughs> They're more intelligent. And all the stupidity about flying saucers coming here to take our energy away, just remember this. If any civilization can travel 100 million light years through space, they don't come here to take anything away from us. Do you understand that? The sun, or they don't come here to draw patterns in the crop fields. 
Right. It, you know, I've and I've I've seen enough evidence of UFOs myself that I you know I do believe there's possibly visitors, but I, I don't believe for a moment that they're here to hurt anybody because the technology that you see demonstrated even from credible sources, you know, like the pilots and such who talk about the things they've seen. You know, if they wanted to take things, they would just do it. There, there wouldn't be any of this silliness of them supposedly taking over the, the, the country through the government or whatever. If they had that type, kind of technology and they wanted something from us, then they would just do it. And but as Jacques pointed out, any civilization that's gone that far is likely developed so far beyond any kind of materialism anyway. They, they don't wish anything from us. Neil, our concern is the planet Earth. Right. This is what supports our life. If we don't take care of the Earth, we will lose it. And that's, you know, a slight detour I would point out is the same thing that I tell people who are big fans of David Icke, uh, the guy who talks about reptilian aliens and all that, and they, they just talk about it endlessly. It's right up there with the 2012 stuff. Here's the biggest debunker that I'll give you, is that if David Icke was correct about all of his theories about reptilian aliens trying to control the world, succeeding in controlling the world, he would be as dead as fried chicken. That's a human attribute, controlling other people. This is not an alien concept. To me, most normal people are aliens. That's right. If you're more afraid of the aliens, with the alien value system on Earth, you know, the ones that are, that are afraid of terrorists and then want to go bomb them, ones that use all our resources and monetary means to make weapons and torture chambers, I'm more afraid of those people. Yeah, they do the same thing with machines and all of their fiction. When they, when they, they you know, they give attributes to machines that are, make them supposedly evil. It, it's the same concept. You know, the Terminators and the, you know, the the evil machines in the Matrix that are out to get us. We, we project all of these fictional ideas into things. And it's funny how many times I get people who who list these fictional stories and they say, "Well, haven't you seen Terminator? Haven't you seen the Matrix?" You know, we can't have machines making decisions as if there were machines in existence right now that were running around killing people. You know, you watch a, a fictional story, it's not a, you know, it, it's not a data point to be brought up in a debate. Just remember this, Neil, that guided missiles are guided by people. And people drop bombs on cities. People torture people. People destroy the ocean and the air. Machines have no attitude about those things. There's never been a, a case where a machine murdered somebody. It's always a human operating machine that kills people. They always extrapolate into the future using machines, really extrapolating the free enterprise system in the future, how they would use machines. It has nothing to do with how the resource-based economy would utilize machines and automation. Definitely. Now, caller from Canada, do you have anything else? Uh, no, I guess uh, uh, maybe one last question would be would have been you know like this system right now is now working for billions of people would and we since we, we still live in a monetary system would something like having a social business or microcredit financing work for people who wanted to you know create what you your ideas locally using some sort of form of monetary system until we can completely get rid of it. Um, we can't really tell you how to use the monetary system or how to acquire money within the monetary system. We don't think that, you know, if people want to work together or kind of a commune to make things easier through a transition, 
think that's all great. It's not the end goal. It's not the answer. It's not what we're advocating on a global scale. So um, however you exist through the times coming that we think are really going to be terrible is it, it, fine, but don't lose the end sight towards a resource-based economy, a global resource-based economy with different values and sustainable use of technology. And remember that there's also a major issue of value change. You can have, uh, you know, all the money that you need, and it will somewhat affect the way people behave, but you have to change the values of the people in question. That's why Jack Reed from Community Planet has to screen people before he involves them in his plan because he needs to be sure that they're going to be the kind of people that are going to be able to, you know, interact in such a circumstance without their, their projections, their insecurities ruining everything. So it's just something to keep in mind. My advice to you, and, and if I'm wrong, Jack, you know, please let me know, but if you really, the closest thing you're going to be able to achieve, if you're really worried about money and people being able to take care of themselves, my advice to you would be to invest in off-the-grid living, meaning as many self-sustaining systems that already exist. People do this right now. Don't try to manipulate money because money comes and goes and it's manipulated by the people on the top. You know, always to be sure that you know, they can keep you using it and keep you under its thumb. It doesn't become a tool at that point. It becomes a method of control. Get as off the grid as you can. Get as independent of the system as you can. Um, you know, get you, you know, don't, don't pay an electric bill. Don't pay a gas bill. Find, you know, invest in the technologies that exist to get you out of those systems. Um, you know, invest in making your own food. That, that's the way. Honestly, that would be the best suggestion I would give you to get the closest thing you're going to get, and even that is not quite it. There is no security in this system, though. You have to understand that if you're living comfortably somewhere and your, your town starts to fall apart economically and people are thrown out of their homes and don't have money to get food, if you have food people and you have a big fence, people will climb over your fence to get that food. They'll knock on your door and say, just for the children. And if you give them food for the children, you'll have hundreds out there the next day looking for food. So You can't solve problems within this economic system, period. Did that answer your question, caller? Yeah, I really, really appreciate it, and I'll take it to heart and uh, see if I can implement it with a whole bunch of people and, uh, you know, just t take your message and, and try to put it in, in, into best practice as possible. Because I see time changing very quickly. Thank you very much, and thanks for tuning in. Yeah, and Thanks too, for bye. calling in. I'm actually very happy. <laughs> There's all these times I'm asking for callers. You guys always checking out, but today's been a good day. <laughs> Thanks again. Um, are you, you listening too, via the switchboard, or should uh, or can I hang up on you? You can hang up. I'm still the switchboard. All right, cool. All right, excellent. Oh, it's good to have that caller. Now, somebody was already on the call. Jesse, you had a question? Or did you forget your question, Jesse? Jesse, you're already on the call. You can go ahead and say it, unless you didn't have a mic. I know. Sorry, Neil. I had myself uh, muted uh, here. Uh, actually, I do have a question, uh, if I can recall it real quick. Yes. Roxanne? Um, you know, I am actually doing some research with my father right now uh, regarding uh, material science, uh, you know, taking RF and curing plastic. Um, you know, I, I want to take that uh, out of that, uh, guess that research lab and bring it into 
more of a uh, resource-based economy mentality. Um, how, how do you think I should uh, approach somebody that has oh, an older value system to kind of move that uh, out of the current? Are you talking about dealing with your father in that way? Yes. Yes. Could you be a bit, just to elaborate, could you be a bit more specific about what values that he has that you're having trouble getting around? Because that's kind of a vague question. Okay, sorry. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, is that I have a technology that I'm working on, assisting in uh, research and development. And I want to move that technology out of the monetary system into more an open system. But what stops that is an old value system. How do you think I should approach the old value system in trying to move that away from that you, old value? You're working with him on developing materials, and he wants to get money out of it, and you're talking about doing something else with it? Is that what the scenario yes. is? I'm sure. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there are open source programs as well. You could introduce him to that. You can't really establish a resource-based economy within the working monetary system. The best we can do right now is educate people towards another direction. If you, you know, and, and make books, make videos, do whatever you can to introduce people to this direction. Um, maybe the best scenario you can, you can look at for is to have him, if he acquires money with this, than to have him use it to promote something that's worthwhile for society. We, we're all prostitutes in this system. We have to do things to make money as well, but we use our money to introduce something else, to really dissolve this system ultimately. It, it, we really couldn't set up, even, a, even if we got a city going, it would be a transitional city between a monetary system and a resource-based economy. That's why it has to be done ultimately on a global scale. Did that help you with your question, Jesse? Yes, it did. Excellent. Did you have anything else? No. Well, thank you. Okay. All right. Well, great question so far. Um, can you think of anything you want to elaborate on and the stuff that we've already been talking about while I wait for somebody else to get the courage to call in, Jacques? Look into our website. Get the book called The Best That Money Can't Buy, Beyond War, Poverty, and Crime, and the Monetary System. In other words, read chapters at meetings, discuss it. Beyond Politics, Poverty, and War, The Best That Money Can't Buy. I also... I just wanted to also mention that if people are interested in the tour, I did a blog that you can you can follow through our website. You can go to the blog. Also, we have a, a media channel, the Venus Project media channel, that you can find on our website, thevenusproject.com, that we're putting up new things every day or every two or three days, uh, little bits of Jacques talking on different subjects. So. There's a lot of information there as well. And also, piece, we're putting up pieces from his old lectures in the, from the 70s to the 80s that were really great. 
Yeah, actually, I've, uh, you guys sent me some of those, and I, I highly recommend them to the listeners. Uh, those are great. Uh, some of the stuff like you guys with the little conversations that you've been putting together. Joel did a really good video where he kind of described that project where he's got to go back and through all of these ancient cassette tapes and make them into files that you guys can put on CDs. Um, I really enjoyed the, the tour um, video set, too. It was really great. Um, yes, the Venus Project Tour is a good one also. It's a five-DVD set. It's, it's fairly new. We did right be- I, I edited it and put it out there right before the tour. Now, did you guys get any kind of um, any any further on the the issue of the motion picture? Like maybe over the course of the tour, did anybody approach you about wanting to help with that, or uh, is, is there anything new about that, or is it still pretty much just kind of a trying to make connections thing? We're working on that, Neil. We're working on a lot of different things. Nothing has come through yet, but we are modifying the script, updating it, and constantly working at it to get it done. We did have some very interesting connections that we've made on the tour that are promising and positive, but we don't really want to talk about them until it's really real. You know, we've had a lot of that in the last 35 years. Yeah, that's. I know, I've noticed that it is kind of tough. You know, actually, I kind of wanted to go ahead and touch on something since I happen to have you guys here. Uh, could you guys explain what went on with uh, Mr. Mullen and his book that, that kind of steals the resource-based economy? Um, um, yeah, we have a friend in England. I'll bring you back to that. We have a friend in England, and his wife works in the book publishing business, and she said, you know, there's a book that, that really is just like Shock's book in a lot of ways. And she thought it was taken from Shock's book, and I didn't pay much attention until – this person that you mentioned sent us his script and wanted to work with us somehow. And to us, it was, you know, even when he started taking the bits and pieces from Jacques' work that I thought were really obvious, the language changed within his writing. He changed a few of the words, but you could tell what was taken, even a lot of the examples, the whole format of the book from the front to the finish, even the parts on, on behavior, but you could tell he really didn't understand those parts that he copied because he contradicted himself farther in on the book. He changed the ending. He put in a lot of work. He put in a lot of great examples and updated some things to today's examples. But it, to us and to other people, it was, it was quite obvious that it was plagiarism. So we sent the book, and, and he didn't mention anything about Jacques or the Venus Project or Jacques' book. So we sent the, the Jack's book to the publisher, his publisher, and he stopped him from publishing it uh, because he thought it was very much alike, too. And he even used the word resource-based economy <laughs> to describe a resource-based economy and, and mentioned that it's something that was, that was um, a very old concept and, you know, it's been around a long time. Well, it's not. Jack coined that word a long time ago. And it came from Jacques, a resource-based economy. So the publisher did stop the book. And then this person wrote to me again several months later and said, I changed the book. I'm not using the word resource-based economy. Um, and he did. So we said, you know, the, the whole premise why we asked him not to print the first time or why we sent the book to the publisher was because he took many things from the book, the whole layout. And he, we didn't feel he could arrive at these things because he was, he was a um, he was a businessman, right? So 
and, and it took many years of experimental work to come up with these, this direction that Jack came up with. He didn't take it from other people. He worked in the field. He worked with animals. He worked with the people of the Klan. He, he joined um, the White Citizens Council and broke it up. A lot of the things he stated came from experimentation in many different fields and technology as well. We didn't think this other person had the background to arrive at that. So uh, we, we told him, well, he can, he, we, the reason we, we wanted um, to at least, we told him he could publish the book, but if he mentions Jacques' book as a source and the date to show people that these, this, these ideas came before that, and he agreed he would do that. You know, he said he'll get back to us. And then the book comes out under the first printing using a resource-based economy, and it doesn't mention Jacques' name or the book. So this is where it stands now. So, yeah, yeah, I know that that's kind of a, a touchy, awkward subject. It's just I wanted the, the real story out there from you guys directly. But that was Dwayne Mullen is his name. He's an African-English um, African individual. Um, he did an interview on television. And, you know, it, the funny thing is he was on the same show, one of the same shows in England that I remember Jacques being on during the course yeah. of the tour. Yeah, both on that show. And um, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> Neil, this is not unusual. Yeah, I was going to mention People that. People have been taking my ideas for years yeah. and raising money on the building designs and everything else. This is not unusual. You it can, happens with every innovator. You can be, assur you can be assured that uh, you will see Jacques' city design come out if we can't get it out. It, it probably will be copied, like everything else that Jack has done was copied, you know, from the technology or and other things. When he worked at, um, where was that, the aircraft industry, he said that people would just walk by his desk and say, by, you know, people who were above him in the, in the corporation, they would come by and say, by the way, I took out a patent on your design that I saw on your desk yesterday. Just so blatant. Mm-hmm. So that they can make money on it, you know, something that Jacques was just going to try to give away. It's, you know, it, it's kind of bad that that happens. I mean, it's it particularly, I think before people got so predatory, I remember, uh, I can't remember which film I got it on, but they, it was actually a video of them, I mean, video, really old video, more like film, of uh, the gentleman who made the polio vaccine. And they asked him who the polio vaccine belonged to. And he said, well, it, it belongs to mankind, you know. And they looked at him like he was nuts, you know. He could have been, you know, a millionaire even by those standards, and he didn't. He, the notion that such a thing should belong to anybody and should be a, a matter of profit was alien to this man. Um, and I usually kind of use that as an example when people try to claim that all, you know, no innovation comes from anything but capitalism. They always assume it's all about money. You know, you have to have money to do any kind of innovation. When the fact is that some of the greatest minds of our time were not motivated by money at all. Um, and yeah, eventually all ideas will be in the public domain. Right. I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day when people don't have to use their ideas ever as a means to make money. Um, you know, as, you know, and also with art, you know, cause I'm an artist myself. I'm a, you know, I'm a writer. I write music. I write fiction. I, I look forward to the day when I don't have to, you know, to sell my art to have any kind of, you know, hope of surviving because that's pretty much where my talents are. So, Wait. There is a problem if you do that today. You know, a lot of people want Jacques' designs. They say, well, how come you don't put out the blueprints or we want to know the details of your designs and your blueprints. We don't see them. 
We don't do that because people sure as hell will patent them, and then when we have the ability to do the city, we won't be able to use those designs. We, we never very sure when people say that they're interested in the technology and it's the technology that they want. They usually want it for their own ends. And Jack used to, he started originally just doing designs and trying to um, put them out there. But when he did the aircraft designs, they used them to go bomb quicker and faster. When he did the original knee prosthesis and hip prosthesis, only the wealthy could use it. So every, he used to work with alcoholics and drug addicts, and for everyone he, he saved, the, the system made 5,000 more. So you know, it was that time when he realized that you really have to change the system. Otherwise, he's just spinning his wheels. You know, and I, and I know that because you and I talk a lot, and I'm not going to get into the details about it, cause, uh, but, but overall, I don't think people really understand just how often you guys are bombarded with one scam or another, you know, where, you know, you've had to consult with your lawyers and your lawyers have been like, well, don't get involved in this, you know, because it's obviously a scam. But, see, I don't think they understand what it's like to be in your position to have all of this. So people are always trying to capitalize on the things you're doing. You know, they, they take it personally when you're, when you're a little bit on the defensive side only because they don't understand what it is that it's like, you know, what, what you guys go through all the time, the different people contacting you to try to capitalize on your ideas, you know. And, we get that constantly, Neil. It happens every day. Everybody is a predator in this system, always trying to make money off of somebody else's work and doing nothing. Right. That's how it works. That's what the stock market is. It's a big whorehouse. Gambling, yeah. you know. The whole notion, that's the funny thing about this, too, is that when you, when you hear people, particularly the ones who are quoting Ayn Rand, they'll say things like, well, somebody who works harder deserves to have more than somebody who doesn't. And I'm like, the people who make the most money, the people who have everything, are the ones who are working the least. You know, um, as, uh, actually, as Patty Shannon from the World Socialist Movement pointed out in his film, he's like, you know, you have the, the factory worker and the factory owner uh, the factory owner gets all the money, but the factory worker is the one who's exhausted at the end of the day. You know, it doesn't seem that their their plan of you know reward is actually kind of relevant because somebody from the England chapter is asking this question. Um, it has to do with, uh, I'm interested to know Jock's view on the reward system in a resource-based economy. If we are all equal, how are those that contribute rewarded or recognized for their efforts? Can you repeat that? Sure, I could say it a little louder, too. Um, question from the British chapter. I'm interested to know Jock's view on the reward system in a resource-based economy. If we are all equal, how are those that contribute rewarded or recognized for their efforts? If you don't get a sense of well-being by eliminating poverty, hunger, war, that's enough for me to work on. Just because we get rid of those basic problems. That's a reward. You don't need a medal. You don't need a, a certificate of honor. You don't need any of that stuff. If you understand mankind and what it is that humans want. What it is that humans want is a piece of the pie. All nations want a piece of the action. That's why they're joined together at the UN to make sure that no single nation takes advantage of any other nation. But the system doesn't work that way. They can't attain that with their organizations. All their organizations today are predatory. 
You know, we're suspicious of people who do things just for money. You don't even know today if somebody says, well, your liver has to come out. Do they want to pay off a boat, a mortgage, send their kids through school, or does your liver have to come out? You know, you, you never know. You don't get real science today. You don't get real science experimentation today because it's very often backed up by a certain corporation who wants a certain outcome to benefit themselves. So there has to be a lot of work done in the future. So people who do things for money we're very suspicious about. Now, and most people who have come up with new ideas did it because they're interested in the direction. They're interested in experimentation and the ideas. Most of the new new inventions that come out come out that way. You know, um, Martin Luther King in the past marched through Salma, Alabama, and got his head bashed in, but he didn't do it because there was $100,000 put in a Swiss bank account for him. He did it because he believed in the direction that he, he was advocating. And we feel that people in the future will see right away the benefits of their work. It'll go directly into society, and that is enough. Re that should be enough reward for people who are not damaged in the future to see humankind elevating all together and everybody taking advantage of that. And um, be, also beyond just the philosophy, I would urge the listeners to look into the the research done by, uh, or at least rep referenced by Daniel Pink. Um, his name is Daniel, and, and literally his last name is as if it was the color pink. But there's a special uh, that you can look up where it basically says the science behind what motivates us. He also did a TED Talk. Um, and the, the, the MIT studies actually showed that monetary reward was only good for, for basically for grungy work. But, but the truth was that uh, the kind of innovation and research and development work was actually uh, – mo money was a terrible incentive for people along that line – which is one of the reasons we're hoping to automate most of the dirty work and encourage people and put, make an environment where they can do more innovation. Um, and he used examples like Linux. The people who make Linux don't make any money, but they made a really solid operating system. And Linux would be far more widely used outside of a monetary system because the only reason why people are not using Linux now is far more reliable, far more stable than any other operating system. It's because a company like Microsoft will be sure that you know, you know, no video games ever get released for it. You know, a lot of other programs that you want are not available for Linux, and only because of money. They do the same thing to Macintosh you know, in their competition. But remember, supposedly competition makes everything better. But competition holds everything back. That's the reason why a Macintosh user cannot play the same video games as his friends, because you know, there's too much interest in competing with one another. You know, it's not in Microsoft's best interest to see to it that the best, you know, um, software is available on all platforms. So they be sure they make, you know, they make deals to ensure that there is no competition in that way. And as long as they have more money, they will always be able to do that. So just something to consider that, you know, uh, innovations actually come best from the people who, you know, really want to see changes. And to be honest with you, the quality of work that I generally see by somebody who's volunteering especially if it has to do with anything that's holistic or to benefit people, is always better from somebody who actually cares than somebody who doesn't. I remember one, for example, I mean, I know that you know, people are kind of anti-police in this movement, but I know one of my friends was a police officer, and I said, you know, maybe they ought to give you guys a raise. You have such a dangerous job. And the police officer said to me, he's like, you know, I appreciate that you said that, but the reality is I don't really want anybody doing this job with me who's motivated by money. I don't want anybody who's on the force with me, who I've got to depend on if things go badly. 
who's motivated by money. I want somebody who's in this job because he loves it and because he wants to help people. You know, and I think that that's a very telling point. And the reality is, is that there are a lot of things like doctors. How many doctors have you met who are obviously in it for the money? Unfortunately, they they do exist, and they're some of the most terrible doctors I've ever met. The best doctor I've ever met was a gentleman from India. And if for some reason I couldn't pay that time, he would just bill me later. You know, and in some cases he wouldn't charge me at all. You know, that, those are the kinds of people. To be honest, I would rather have the ones be the, them be the ones who are looking into my care. I'm here doctors without borders. Right. You know, doctors without borders. I've heard of it. Go ahead and explain. That's the kind of people I'm talking about. Yep. I understand where you're coming from. Basically, I take it you're, it's basically group, it's, it's a group of doctors that go out to help people where needed. Is that where you're getting at? Yes, that's true. And uh, what is it? Flight for sight, too. They do the same thing and work on people's eyes, give them, um, restore their eye problems. And they, they do that for free all over the world. They have a plane that, that's called Light for Sight. It's also very good. Uh, we have a doctor friend who we trust very much, and sometimes he trades for chickens. <laughs> right. Now, I understand. And, and the funny thing is it is a myth and a fallacy that, that supposedly people won't contribute. One of the things that I've stated more than once is that there are a lot of people who would love to contribute, but the monetary system does not allow them to do so. It is not the monetary system that is that allows charity. It's what holds us back. You know, and I always use tell the story. If I could be right now in Africa building a hydroponic food system to be able to feed the starving, I'd be doing it. It's not monetarily possible. That's the only thing that holds me back. People would be donating a lot more to charity if they could afford it. They'd be donating a lot more of their time, but they can't because the monetary system demands, you know, 40 hours or more weeks out of them so they can either choose to starve or to help somebody. I mean, it just it, it, the system is not set up to allow people to, to be volunteers as much as they would like to be. And that's why in a resource-based economy, I think we would have no shortage of people who are willing to help. And we don't need everybody. You need about 7,000 technicians and scientists to, to take care of the problems that we have and initiate them. You know, that's actually an interesting point that, that people always bring up is that they, they're, they're always concerned about what authority this they, they always assume that the 7,000, you know, group of, you know, the 7,000 technicians are going to be ruling people. Can you explain, you know, what the role of these people are and, and basically dispel this myth that they're going to have any right to rule anybody? Bridge designers design bridges to carry traffic across water. They do nothing else. And when you deal with public health, it has to do with a survey of physical conditions and research to alleviate those conditions. They do not control people. They control disease, disorders, tsunamis, hurricanes, but they do not control people. The whole idea of a future is people are assigned different tasks depending on their profession and background and information. You know, you make an excellent point there, and I, I think that part of what people don't understand is that, you know, it, as you pointed out in Zeitgeist Addendum, and I usually have to remind them of this, you said the state does nothing because there is no state. And, and they always assume that there needs to be something ruling or that everybody needs to do that. Is that what, what we're trying to do is to make the whole concept of people needing to be ruled obsolete. When you think about, you know, the kind of things that your politicians do for you, in many cases, you know, a lot of those, those tasks could and should be automated. I usually tell the story of, you know, we elect people, for example, to take care of our sewers. There's a certain 
I forget the name of it, but there was a guy I talked to when I was on the campaign trail who was running for that position. He takes care of the water and all that. And, and as soon as you introduce a politician to that situation, you're basically expect you, you're, you're asking for trouble because then they're going to be affected by lobbyists who are going to want to have no bid contracts for their own companies to be the ones to monitor the sewer system. It's going to take forever to get back to it. It's not going to be efficient. We don't need a man doing that job. We need to basically create an, an intelligent system that has a nervous system of its own that knows when there's a problem with a sewer, dispatches a robot to go fix the problem, and if it can't fix the problem, then to go get a technician, not some politician who's there for a paycheck, not just for the people who are paying taxes, but from whoever will give the best campaign contributions. That's actually how things are controlled now, and I, it's, it frightens me sometimes that people don't recognize how much they're controlled how much the politicians they depend on are totally controlled. They can't get elected unless they are basically total whores. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, you hit the nail on the head, Neil. That's it. Neil, we're going to have to sign off now, but um, we really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. Hope we can be on again soon. Excellent. Yeah, we, we, we didn't have much time left anyway, so that's great. I think we had an awesome conversation, and it's, uh, it's very clear, actually, that uh, using Skype is a lot better. I think Jock heard us a lot better than you know he has in the past, so that that's been yeah. great. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, disconnect from the show now, and I'll, I wanted to ask you guys a couple of questions very briefly after the show is over, and I'll let you know when it's just us. But uh, thank you everybody for tuning in. Um, please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. Um, whenever you see me post my stuff on Facebook, you know, please, you know, post the links, share those links, spread the spread the word so that we can get these radio shows out to more people. If you want to have an alternative media, it's only going to happen if you support it. You guys want to say goodbye to the listeners? Yes, we really appreciate you listening, and um, hope to talk to you again soon. Yes, Neil, it was good talking with all of you. Excellent. Thanks again, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to V Radio.